0: The Washington Post calls him one of America's greatest living writers. He's also one of the country's most popular authors of American history. David McCullough is marking 50 years with his publisher Simon & Schuster with his latest bestseller, The Wright Brothers. His research unveils a portrait of the brothers as work-obsessed, Plain-speaking, sometimes socially awkward inventors whose lives were dedicated to making aviation work, despite the odds that their latest contraption could actually kill them. David McCullough has joined us in the Travel with Rick Steves studio to help us better understand Wilbur and Orville Wright and how they changed the world. David, thanks for coming by, and congratulations on another wonderful book.
1: Well, I'm delighted to be with you, and I want to congratulate you on your work, which I am follow with greatest interest and pleasure. I think we both appreciate public broadcasting. We do, but we also appreciate the importance of travel, Yeah, of going places where things happened and understanding what happened and why and the people there, and the refreshing, invigorating spirit that it gives one's outlook on life. I try to go everywhere that any event in any of the books that I write took place. And I've stressed that all along, and I've encouraged students that if you want to write about something, go to where it happened.
0: You know, I think I can tell from reading your books that you can relate to the place. Absolutely. You're you're
1: grounded in the spot. The place is very important, particularly the place where people grew up.
0: What happened on December 17, 1903, and why was that important enough for you to write about the men who made that happen?
1: First of all, where it happened was on the outer banks of North Carolina, which, At that time, there was no bridge over there. There were no roads. It was sand dunes and beaches and a very small population just barely getting by, primarily fishing. And the Wright brothers went there to test their flying ideas because they needed continuous wind. And there was plenty of wind out there. And they loved the idea of a soft landing on sand, not on rock or higher earth. And there were very few people to be curious and asking too many questions and taking up their time. And they'd never been away from home. They'd never seen the ocean. They traveled over 700 miles from Dayton, Ohio, in their bicycle shop. And it was like nothing they'd ever seen or experienced in their lives, and they loved every minute of it, despite the hurricanes and the sieges of mosquitoes and all the other things that went wrong. It was for them, it was the work they loved to do, and their courage and their refusal to give in when they failed and their ingenuity and their attention to detail were all of a sort that we can learn from no matter what we do or no matter what we strive to do.
0: It's amazing. That was you mentioned in your book that you were 15 years old when Orville died. That's and, right. I
1: could have known him. You uh, could
0: have known him. And think of what's happened since then. Oh, absolutely. Then. In, in one lifetime. But
1: that Orville was the one that flew that day, December 17th, very cold day, 20, 25-mile-an-hour winds. And, of course, nobody thought they would succeed. They weren't sure they'd succeed. They never—what it was was they were pioneers. the glider that they had developed. And put a motor on it.
0: As a matter of fact, you wrote about that in your book. It almost sounds like a legal responsibility. The first mechanically powered, heavier-than-air machine to achieve controlled, sustained flight with a pilot on board. Right. 120 feet, 12 seconds. It's all took. Orville.
1: Yep. Yes. However, the brothers are taking turns. It was Orville's turn. And they kept on flying that day. And by the end of the day, or close to the end of the day, Wilbur had flown over 500 feet, or close to half a mile. So they They they, they really knew they'd done it. That was the day they broke through. Oh, yes. It's one of the most important days in all of history. It changed history. Do you think they knew that that first 120 feet in 12
0: seconds was the most difficult, and after that, the arc of progress would just zoom up?
1: Remember, they've never tried it before. Right. This is their first time ever to try this machine they've made. And the fact that even though it bounced like a bucking bronco horse— Before it settled down, they knew instantly we've done it. So air is
0: like matter and they can cruise through it now.
1: Well, they learned to ride the wind. Ride the wind. By studying soaring birds. Very simple.
0: You must have read a lot of letters and do this primary research. Did you get a sense, uh, David, at anything that you read that? That they thought much about the future of this, what an impact it would have on domestic travel, on tourism? No, they
1: really didn't think much about that. In Mm -hmm. fact, they were asked, Do you think there will be a plane that will fly the ocean? They said Mm -hmm. no. But they had a good reason because, in order to have an engine that's strong enough to do that, it would have to carry so much gasoline and so much water that the weight would preclude it. Well, they hadn't That was beyond their imagination. They hadn't figured on an air cooled engine. Oh, which yeah. was invented very shortly after by man named, another American named Charles Lawrence.
0: Now, there were a lot of people trying to figure this out. There. It seems like there was a frenzy of inventors trying to make a flying machine back then. What do you think were the unique skills that gave the Wright brothers their winning combination? Because they didn't have the big money by the, By
1: studying the soaring birds, mm-hmm. watching how they used the ends of their wings, how could they possibly stay up there without flapping their wings? Yeah. Well, these are two bicycle riders. These are two bicycle manufacturers, and they realize it's balance. They're balancing on the wind. We balance on the road. They are balancing on the wind. So how do they control that balance, and how do they bank and turn? So once they figured that out, they created what they call wing warping, where they could twist the wings so that they could bank and turn, almost exactly the way a soaring bird does.
0: So did they complement each other in their skills, Wilbur and Orville, or was one of them more dominant and and more important?
1: I would say yes to both. Wilbur was the genius. Wilbur was the older brother. He He was the boss, the big brother, and he was also truly, literally a genius. Orville was very clever and ingenious mechanically, but he didn't have the reach of mind that Wilbur did. Wilbur was an absolutely amazing human being. So they were the right combination, the right right duo. They both were. Neither of them ever finished high school. They had no technical training. But it was like homeschooling with their preacher father, right? Well, the preacher father who insisted that they read. Right. This preacher father who gave them a full liberal arts education. They had to read history. They read literature. They read they read everything.
0: You know, a surprise from reading your book was the importance of their sister. We never hear about Catherine, but she was she was exceptional. Well, as well.
1: one of the joys of writing the book was to bring Catherine's front and center stage because she deserves it. Talk about credit long overdue. Right. She was a pistol. She was bright. She was full of ideas. She was full of humor. She was also had a hot temper. She could get wrathy, as she said. She stood about five feet one, but she had no trouble whatsoever holding her own. She was a schoolteacher, taught Greek and Latin in the local Dayton High School. But she was always there when they needed her, and she kept them on the track. And her letters, which have survived, as theirs have, are the greatest testimony to their father's insistence on using the English language, not only correctly, but effectively. They were incapable of writing a dull letter or a short one. And there, there are thousands of them.
0: The vivid detail in your book is just remarkable. And all I could think is, did these guys write their letters with an appreciation of history? Did they know that, that this might be of some I don't other? think so.
1: I think their notes, their professional correspondence, their professional papers and presentations to professional groups and so were definitely. Mm-hmm. But as far as the family correspondence, it was all very personal, very revealing, very private and terrific because that's how you can get inside their lives. It's the human beings in this story that interests me most. By the time I was halfway through work on this book, I realized even if they hadn't succeeded, I would have wanted to have written this book. So remarkable are they as human beings. And it's never more apparent than when they went to France. Never more apparent. This is Travel with Rick Steves.
0: We're talking with David McCullough. He's the author of numerous bestsellers on American history. His books on American presidents, adventures, and inventors have earned him dozens of prestigious awards, including two Pulitzer Prizes. His latest work, The Wright Brothers, raced to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. David's website is davidmccullough.com. David, it must have been expensive, and I just can't help but wonder... How did they fund this this whole mission of
1: theirs? They did everything themselves. First of all, they built everything themselves. They didn't have somebody else build things for them. And the money that they used to spend on their experiments was taken from their rather modest profits from their bicycle shop. They, they just didn't sell bicycles. They made bicycles. And it was a time when bicycling was a big fad. So there right. was a big market for that
0: it. That was opportune
1: for them. But to give you an example, the head of the Smithsonian who was a very famous scientist, Samuel Langley, spent something like $50,000 of public money, Smithsonian Institution money, Mm. and another 20,000 of private money that was given to him by wealthy friends to develop his airplane, aerodrome he called it, and it did nothing but shoot up in the air (laughs) and then dive into the Potomac River. What the Wright brothers' plane, the plane they flew at Kitty Hawk on that famous day, December 17th, 1903, That whole thing cost less than $1,000. They never had any financial backer. They never had any great institution or foundation or university behind them. They had no political pull. They did it all themselves, everything. It's a great American story. And they were laughed at. They were ignored. (laughs) They were
0: mocked. Now, did they really, when you look at it from an international point of view and so on, did they deserve the credit for inventing the airplane? Is there any question about that? Absolutely, yes. Because no there, was, there was other stuff happening. Yes, in, and there
1: are other people who keep claiming this. No, they absolutely did it themselves. And it's all on record. That's the other thing. Some of these other claims, there's nothing, no proof, no okay. photographs, no okay.
0: nothing. So they knew about that. They had a, a little bit of Yes, a they, they, were they, they, were very, they wanted, they wanted to credit.
1: have their place in history be authentic and provable. How did they work to authenticate? They took photographs of everything they so, did. So I mean, on the cover of your book, this is the first—
0: That's the first flight that's ever. That's the first flight.
1: It's one of the most historic events in all of history— one of the most historic and important photographs in all of history, and they—they they had somebody else take it with their camera. That's reproduced from the original glass plate, and it's as sharp and clear as it had been taken yesterday.
0: You know, when we look at that airplane, it looks so frail. How did they land a plane like that on those first without well, they I mean, it land, must have been they, they were
1: landing on sand, and they're just right. coming. They—they they couldn't use wheels because the skidded sand. Skidded to a halt. Yes, and they took off on a little railing like a track, okay. which was composed of two by fours. And it all was very primitive, and if you see the original plane, which is on view in the Smithsonian Institution, you wonder how in the world are they do it. It's also much bigger than you think it's going to be. This is a big plane.
0: Now, David, this is a travel show, and we're all dreaming about traveling, and it is so clear when, when we read your books, you have traveled and you've been to these places. If we're inspired by the Wright Brothers and your book— What's a travel tip you'd give us? Where
1: should we go to see this stuff? Well, you should definitely go to Kitty Hawk. Right. It's a national park. You can see exactly where they took off. Everything's there. And a wonderful museum. Mm -hmm. And you should definitely go to the Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, right outside of Detroit, where the home that they grew up in, which was all important to their shaping, their their whole outlook on life. Outside of Detroit. How they were raised at home. And the bicycle shop where they built the first airplane that ever flew in the history of the world is right there, and you should go to Paris, and you should go to Le Mans, just southwest of Paris, the racetrack town, where for the first time, Wilbur Wright flew a plane demonstrating to an audience, to a public, that man could fly. There's the eighth day of August in 1908, the eighth day of the eighth month of the eighth year. And that's when the world suddenly realized man can fly. That's five years later. They were struggling for took five them five years, years because to... nobody believed that they no, could do it. Nobody They wouldn't attention. even bother to come look at it. So the French were the ones that
0: said, hey, yes, these guys are they something.
1: Came, they'd heard about it, came over and invited <laughs> them to come to— prepare. They didn't want to do it. They wanted—they're very patriotic Americans. But there, our government slammed the door in their face about five times, and they were sick of it, and understandably. Yeah. Whereas the French were keenly interested in aviation the future of aviation. And once they did that, thousands of people came to Le Mans by the trainload every day from all over France and all over Europe. And you can go there today in the same place where that flight was taken off. You can walk where the, the hotel was at Po. They also flew down at Po, which is a beautiful town, way down by the Spanish border. So
0: did they box the plane up and put it on oh, the boat? Yeah,
1: yeah. put it on a boat. And assembled it. Yes, they had to reassemble because... It, yeah. then, The customs, the French customs official. (laughs) There was no box. I have an airplane They uncrated the the box, and they did it in such a rough, ignorant way that they broke just about everything. And poor Wilbur had to put it all back to really virtually remanufacture it himself right there.
0: So that was Wilbur that went to France, just one of them.
1: Yes, and Wilbur responded to Europe like very few Americans ever have. When suddenly, for the first time, he went into a major art exhibit, art museum, never had seen it. He would take every spare moment he had to go to the Louvre. He wrote these wonderful letters home about which paintings he liked and which he thought were overrated, which school of painting he responded to. And honestly, no graduate student there to uh, become an art historian could have written anything. And he wrote them to his sister and his father, knowing they wanted to hear about it. But greatest of all are the letters he wrote from Le Mans about the incredible cathedral at Le Mans. Which nobody ever writes about, but he responded to with a wholehearted awe and detail about this cathedral, which is both Romanesque and Gothic. And that's one of the reasons he loved it, because he could see so much history. He was
0: instrumental in bringing the modern age, the the age of flying, into the world. And then he was so just enthralled with the wonders of uh, the culture of the past.
1: Well, he talks about how in the Gothic nave, it goes up and up to a clear story where there's magnificent stained glass windows letting the light in, and you said, "And you sense this desire to reach for the sky." Well, of course, that's exactly what he's doing. That's what Gothic to reach was the all sky. about, I yeah, think, and Absolutely. that's what Orville and Wilbur were all about. This is travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David McCullough,
0: his latest book, *The Wright Brothers*. David, when I when I hear you talk and when I when I re- read through the book, it's like You must have been like a kid in a candy shop with all these original letters to read. I mean, it must have been... Oh, my.
1: For most of my books, I've depended tremendously on the letters, the letters of John Adams and Abigail, the letters of Harry Truman, because they bring you into their private world. You can get to know these people in many ways better than you can know people in real life, because in real life, you don't get to read other people's mail. We don't write letters anymore, for one thing. But these letters are... They're works of art, They are, and they're humbling because you realize, once again, they never even finished high school.
0: What a blessing that we have these. I oh, mean, my goodness. It's conceivable they wouldn't have written, and then all of this richness yeah. behind the story. And, 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 be
1: and their love of learning. Their lo- their, years later, Orville Wright was interviewed, and he said, would you agree with so many Americans that you and your brother are the perfect example of how far one can go in life, an American could go in life? who's had no advantages growing up. And he said, we grew up with the greatest advantage you could possibly have. And the man said, well, what is that, sir? And he said, we grew up in a home which stimulated and encouraged intellectual curiosity. David,
0: let's just say you could have dinner with Wilbur or Orville tonight. Yes. What would you love to ask them and and, uh, what's one thing you'd like to tell them?
1: Well, I'd love to hear more about Wilbur's feelings on the great cathedral at Le Mans. Mm -hmm. And what, what was in his spirit that so responded to the art and architecture of his travels. And then I'd love to ask Orville why he refused to speak to Catherine, the sister, again when she announced she was going to get married. He thought she'd betrayed him, but I would like to hear. And he comes across as the selfish, mean guy, which he wasn't. He really wasn't. I'd like to hear his side of the story. If you could
0: just tell them one thing a hundred years after their, their work, what would you tell them?
1: I'd tell them that my admiration for them as human beings is greater even than my absolute awe at the working of their minds.
0: Beautiful. David McCullough, thank you so much for all your work and most recently, the Wright brothers.
1: Thank you, sir.
0: Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through France and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Paris and the south of France, Paris and the heart of France, Paris by itself, and the villages and vineyards of eastern France. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.